It's Wednesday, September 26th, and this is The Daily Dive. The spectacular fall for a man once known as America's dad is complete for now. Bill Cosby has been sentenced to three to ten years in prison for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constant and was taken away after his hearing in handcuffs, an image that many thought they would never see. Claudia Rosenbaum, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for more on the sentencing and Cosby's classification as a sexually violent predator. Next, President Trump is once again at the top of the world stage as he delivered an address to the UN General Assembly. Trump had tough words for Iran, defended his trade policies, rejected globalism, and promoted the sovereignty of the US and other countries. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico, joins us for what the president said and what caused some in the audience to laugh at during his speech. Finally, it seems millennials are actually doing something right. They are staying married. According to a new analysis, younger couples are causing the divorce rate to plummet. They are being pickier about who they marry and tying the knot at older ages when education, careers, and finances are on track. My producer Miranda joins us for why marriages today have a better chance of lasting longer than 10 years ago. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For decades, the defendant has been able to hide his true self and hide his crimes, using his fame and fortune. He used his acting skills and that endearing uh, TV personality to win over his victims and then keep them silent. Finally, Bill Cosby has been unmasked, and we have seen the real man as he is headed off to prison. Joining us now is Claudia Rosenbaum, reporter for BuzzFeed News. You've been following this case from the very beginning, and we now find out that Bill Cosby, once known as America's dad, is getting three to 10 years in prison for sexual assault, for drugging and raping Andrea Constant. It was like a two-day hearing that happened for the sentencing hearing. We saw the video of him walking out in handcuffs. What happened? This has been a long time coming. I mean, Andrea Constad, you know, this incident with Andrea Constad where she was sexually assaulted happened in 2004. So I, just to give you a little history of the backstory, when I mean, we had the first trial, which was a mistrial after the jury couldn't reach a verdict and deliberated for 52 hours. And then we had a second trial where after 14 hours of deliberations, they, you know, all came to the same conclusion and found Cosby guilty of aggravated sexual assault, three counts. So today's hearing was a two-day hearing they have to determine what sentence to give him. And the first order of business that they dealt with was whether Cosby will be declared a sexually violent predator, which after some discussion, the judge ruled that he would be a sexually violent predator for the rest of his life, meaning he'll have lifetime registration if and when he ever gets out of prison. And if he ever moves around, his community, his neighbors, all the schools will be notified Bill Cosby's in the area and get a picture of him. That is so crazy to imagine him just popping up on these websites and things like that, of all these notifications that you got to give. So he's in there a minimum of three years before he can be eligible for parole. Judge Stephen O'Neill during the hearing said no one is above the law and no one should be treated differently or disproportionately. This is a long time coming for you. And he gave a lot of weight to the victim impact testimony. Andrea Constant gave an emotional statement there where she talked about how Bill Cosby robbed her of her innocence and her energy throughout this whole thing. 
Yeah, Andrea Constantine has put up with a, a lot. This has been her life for the past almost 15 years. She has brought the case to the police originally, you know, a, a, almost a year after what happened when she told her mother about it. She's been available to detectives. She's been, you know, testified at the first trial. At the second trial, she had a civil case that she brought against him. And so, obviously, this has taken a huge toll on her life. I'm surprised, you know, when I see her that she's she's so calm and she doesn't seem like she really holds um, anything against anyone. Part of the punishment included a $25,000 fine. Do we know what that's about, what that's for? It said it was to Andrea Constad, you know, a victim fine. I, I haven't really researched it, but, but since then, actually, the district attorney posted that Cosby is to pay another $46,000 to reimburse the district attorney for all their experts that they wow. flew in and paid and for Andrea Constad and all the people who testified against him. So he has to pay for that now, too. Prosecutors at the onset of this wanted anywhere from five to 10 years. The defense was asking for house arrests and things like that. They were saying, you know, Bill Cosby is legally blind. He's old and vulnerable and he couldn't do all that time in jail. Yeah, I spoke to actually, um, you know, the prison where Cosby will be eventually going. They just built this new state-of-the-art prison that's near the courthouse. It's called Phoenix. And I spoke to the spokesperson of the prison over there, and she said he's not going to be alone. He's not going to be the only elderly person there. In Pennsylvania, they have life without parole. They have a, a sizable elderly population at that institution. They're not making exceptions for those people for being old. They're not going to make an exception for Bill Cosby. Right. And and when he gets there, they say that staff are going to assess his physical, medical security needs. And it's quite possible he could even end up in a long-term medical care unit there. It's very doubtful he's going to be mixing it up with anybody dangerous. Well, I did ask them what arrangements are going to be made for Bill Cosby at the prison when he finally goes to the prison. And they said, you know, originally they've had other celebrities before. They have Jerry Sandusky currently in prison and they had Meek Mill. They said originally both those people were kept in, you know, isolated, secure cells without mixing with the general population. But then it was later determined that there was no risk to them. So they're in the general population. And what's been the reaction so far from both sides of the legal teams? I know that a lot of the victims have been very happy with the sentence that came down. What are they saying and what are Bill Cosby's team saying? Janice Dickinson put out a statement. She talks about how the harrowing memory of this rape continues to this day for her and that she has reoccurring nightmares and she wakes up in fear that the rape is etched into her soul of what he did to her and that she'll never be the same. And a lot of the other people talked about that as well. They did a press conference and the victims came and they made their statements. But they said they sort of felt better now that he was locked up and he was in jail. It was at least like helping them in a way, put it behind them. For Cosby, his spokesperson came out and just issued very strange statements saying that this was the most racist or sexist trial he had ever seen and they were all lies of this trial yeah. and he talked about how Jesus was persecuted and not saying Cosby is Jesus but we know that this country has done to black men for centuries. It's and a hard sell when more than 60 women came forward accusing Bill Cosby of all the same stuff. The stories were nearly identical across the board so I know his team is going to appeal still so that could drag out the process again. A lot of people are making a big deal of what his first meal is going to be out there. Uh, you told me that you got word of it, what that is. What's well, gonna be? he's <laughs> he's in the county. 
county facility right now where he could stay there between like weeks or days or months. They don't know how exactly how long he's going to be there. And TMZ put out that he's going to be having pudding or or something in one of his first meals, which is kind of funny. (laughs) What a spectacular fall for such a respected man at one point. Claudia Rosenbaum, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. Joining us now is Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. The president was uh, given his address before the U.N. General Assembly. He spoke about Iran. He spoke about trade imbalances and even drew some laughs from the crowd. Let's start there. What did he say? Because it was at the beginning of his speech. What did he say that drew laughs from the crowd? Well, he started out by declaring that his administration in its first two years had accomplished more than pretty much any other presidential administration in history. And that is a very questionable claim. And the world leaders who had gathered at the General Assembly immediately just started laughing because <laughs> it was just not something that they did not think was plausible. Right. And he did handle it pretty well. I mean, he said, oh, that's not what I was expecting. But, you know, that's OK. That's OK. You know, he didn't fly off the handle or something at that point. Yeah, I know. I mean, he, he, he kept it steady. But, you know, it, it was really striking because he uses this kind of bragging often at rallies of supporters. And so he's used to getting applause. And so this is a reaction where people were just calling him out on it effectively. Like, right. And he's, he wasn't quite used to that sort of laughter. <laughs> and a lot of people even drew comparisons to when he was criticizing President Obama for saying, you know, he's being he's a laughingstock on the world stage. And, you know, he had his little moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of his it was tactically a campaign slogan, you know, when he was running for president was the world is laughing at us and the world sort of ended up laughing at Trump. But, you know, you're right. He did handle it pretty carefully. What was in the rest of the speech? Because uh, the topic of the speech was all over the place. Earlier in the weeks, it had been, you know, he's going to be speaking about Iran. This speech centered a lot around sovereignty of nations and, hey, you know, let us do what we want. We're not going to get into any type of trade deals that don't benefit the United States. And we're going to respect your rights to do the same thing. Uh, So what else did he talk about? He covered a range of issues. These speeches are sort of like State of the Union speeches. They touch on a lot of different things. But a huge part of it was emphasizing the importance of national sovereignty. This idea that the United States would never give up its independence. He kind of cast this idea of globalism as a threat. Even though it's questionable, like what sort of threat is really out there on that front. Isn't that kind of the purpose of the UN also? Not to expand on the globalism agenda per se, but everybody getting together and handle problems that confront the world. I mean, that's kind of the purpose of, of the UN. Well, it is, it is at least supposed to be a forum for sovereign nations, however. I mean, if you look at the original like UN Charter, nobody, none of the countries said they were giving up their sovereign rights. And frequently, countries do say that they don't have to listen to anything that's coming out of the United Nations, whether it's a sentiment of, you know, the majority of the rest of the world or what. But the situation with Trump is that he, he almost makes it seem as if the UN as a body is inherently contradictory to what sovereignty is, whereas in reality, it's supposed to be just kind of a forum where people get together to talk things through instead of going to war. And what did he say when he um, moved towards Iran? Because he had been raring to go for this part of the UN uh, talks for a while. I mean, he wanted to say that they are not America's friends and they're just sowing chaos, death and destruction. 
he loves to target Iran, and in many of his speeches, he casts them as the ultimate example of evil in the world, sowing chaos, sowing terror. And, you know, he decided, uh, he stressed once again that he felt like his decision to leave the Iran nuclear deal was the right decision. He felt like the Iranians had taken advantage of gaining all money and more uh, online activity, uh, as the White House likes to call it, uh, throughout the Middle East. Now, he did this, but at the same time, it was really interesting because just a few hours earlier, he had tweeted out that although he had no plans to meet with Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, that he was sure that Rouhani was, quote, an absolutely lovely man. It was just a bizarre example of Trump's contradictions. He'll say one thing one minute and say the complete opposite in another minute, and people just don't know really where they stand with him. You mentioned that we withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting, because there's sanctions on companies that would do business with them. And one thing that I noticed was Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and China all announced that they'd agreed to set up some type of special payment system to allow companies doing business with Iran to kind of circumvent those sanctions. Correct. China set up a mechanism so that firms that do business with Iran can use this funding mechanism and avoid getting sanctioned by the United States. Legally, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how it's going to work. But on the one hand, it's very much a poke in the eye of Trump right. saying, look, we don't care for your unilateral moves and we're going to keep doing business with Iran because we think the Iran deal is worth keeping. At the same time, many, many, many European businesses have already left the Iranian market. They just don't feel comfortable taking the risk of being sanctioned by the United States and losing access to the U.S. market as a result. And and so diplomats can say all that they want. But frankly, when you look at businesses leaving, I mean, the money and the movement of the money is what really talks. Finally, his supporters do love the tough talk when he's out there. It shows that he's out there sticking up for us when we can't, especially with a lot of this trade stuff. I know there's a lot of things going on with China and this, you know, quote unquote trade war. He did announce that there is some new deal with South Korea. What happened on the trade front? He basically reiterated his longstanding grievances about the U.S. Or the international trade system. He felt like America is being ripped off by countries like China. He completely defended his tariffs that he has imposed on China and does not give an inch on this particular front, even though many of his own advisors have told him that he is misunderstanding the way global markets work and that ultimately this is going to harm the U.S. economy. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My husband and I got together. We were 17 and it was 2003 and didn't get married until 2017. So that's 14, 15 years that we've been together. (laughs) We were engaged for like four years before even bothering dealing with it because I didn't want to deal with planning a wedding. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the plummeting divorce rate. My producer Miranda is joining us now. Thanks for joining us, Miranda. Hello, Oscar. I love this report. It seems like millennials are finally doing something right. They're staying (laughs) married longer. A sociology professor named Philip Cohen at the University of Maryland did a deep analysis about the divorce rates, and they found out that they dropped 18% from 2008 to 2007. 16. What is he saying is the cause of all this? He's saying that younger couples, millennial couples approach their relationships very differently from baby boomers. Baby boomers married very young. They would divorce, they'd get married, so on and so forth. And Generation X, but specifically millennials, are way more picky about who they end up ultimately marrying. 
And a lot of times they get married very late into their relationships or when they're much older. Once they've gone through all the education, once their careers and their finances are on track. There's a lot of different things that have to uh, go with this also. They say that the marriage rate has also fallen, which is one of those things that goes with millennials too. They're not getting married as early. So the numbers are fluctuating in a lot of different areas, but they say that still there's evidence that marriages today have a greater chance of lasting longer than they did 10 years ago. Millennials are also cohabitating, doing the Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell thing, if you will, where they live together, they have a family together, but they don't actually ever end up getting legally married. And they say that those relationships ultimately end up being less stable than the ones who do get married. So it is still pretty strong of a union. I can only maybe attribute that to since there is no full on commitment, we're not married. It could be a little less stable because of that, because you can always walk away at that point. When you don't deal with lawyers, it's a little easier to step away. Right. They also say that, you know, boomers are continuing to still divorce at high numbers way up into their 60s and 70s. Older Americans are still going through that. It's that cycle that you talked about, getting married, then getting divorced, remarrying, maybe another divorce, and then another remarriage or something. They're saying that the divorce rate actually doubled for people ages 55 to 64 and then tripled for Americans 65 and older, suggesting the trend is called a gray divorce. They're saying that that's leveling out, but boomers are still divorcing at much higher rates than previous generations did at the same age. Yeah, they're saying marriages are more and more an achievement of status rather than something you just kind of do regardless of what your financial status or educational status is, as maybe was in the past. You know, it's funny reading this because it it really does make me think about myself. My wife and I have been together about 13 years now. We waited 10 years before we got married. And, you know, I remember a lot of people always saying like, hey, how long have you guys been together? And I'm like, oh, seven years or so now. And it was like, why aren't you guys married? <laughs> And it really was a lot of these same things. I mean, we were together and very committed very early on, but we both lived at home for a little while. Then we both commuted so far to work and we're like, hey, you know, we don't want to commute anymore. Let's get a place out there closer to work together. And then those are new financial stressors that, you know, we didn't want to throw a huge expensive wedding on top of. So we just kind of waited and we're living our lives, do living our best lives, as they say. <laughs> and it wasn't until 10 years later that we finally got married. And so, similar for you, too, right? Pretty much exactly the same story. Uh, my husband and I got together. We were 17 and it was wow. 2003 and didn't get married until 2017. So that's 14, 15 years oh, that we've been together. <laughs> yeah. So, and everyone's saying that when are you getting married? When are you getting married? We were engaged for like four years okay, before yeah. even bothering dealing with it. Cause honestly, I'm just kind of a lazy type of person and I didn't want to deal <laughs> with planning a wedding. Yeah. I mean, and that's another big hiccup into the whole thing. I mean, the expense of a wedding, the plan and the timing that it takes. They say a lot of these people waited until their careers were set and all that stuff. But when you've got a career going too, I mean, you're, trudging away busy. every day. You're busy. Yeah. And I remember how frustrating it was to kind of plan it in the backdrop of working every day and doing all that stuff. And as I said, the cost is huge. I mean, it's I one of the most, remember how much my it's one of the costs. most expensive <laughs> things you could do. If you go that route, I have a ton of friends who have done the, Hey, we're just going to get married in the court. And then we'll have a nice big family party or something that's like that. That's the expensive part. And, and, so. and that's it. But, you know, not the huge, you know, reception hall. And thing, <laughs> yeah, you know, let's sure. do it in a family's backyard or something like that. Exactly. So it's just an interesting story. Um, you know, Bloomberg wrote this up. And like I said, the millennials are causing the U.S. divorce rate to plummet. So, so if you want to do it, the negative millennial angle, what are millennials ruining now? 
divorce. <laughs> They're putting out, putting divorce lawyers out of business. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.